You're listening to The Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends. Good, we got them back both at the same time. Dr. Stephen Kissler, who is an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. How's it going, you guys? Great. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, doing well. Good to see you. Stephen, good to see you again. Welcome back from the cave again. No, you, uh, Thank you. you re- right. we, we missed you last you, week while we you were did. in the paper, paper yeah. drafting mode. <laughs> we were. How's it going? How's how everything's going? Yeah, you know, it's going all right. It's, uh, it's, it's been uh, you know, a lot of work to turn some of these analyses around, but I think we're finally getting there. So Good, good. What do you, I'm just curious, when do you expect to have a potential uh, publication? Uh, so we've got two things posted already on these yeah. preprint servers, which have been actually uh, pretty instrumental in the, in the outbreak response so far. Um, basically, the academic community all posts their new papers on a uh, on a website before they're even submitted to journals. And so I'm hoping it'll be actually published within the next couple of weeks, ideally. But the work's already out there. So Great. Awesome. I look forward to seeing it. Now, we can see it on those pre-publication servers or not? Yeah, that's right. Oh, cool. Um, I can send you a link if you'd like. Yeah, we'll put in the show notes. That'd be great. Cool. That'd be awesome. Great. Okay, so a few things to talk about before we get going. Just usual, we could always use your reviews, and uh, that helps us a lot to move up in the rankings. Go on iTunes, leave a favorable or any kind of review. That would be awesome. Just give us your honest feedback. We'd love that, as well as if you want to support us in any way, just to help us get equipment uh, more established and to help offset some of the editing. We'd be greatly appreciated that. You can do that easily at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash pandemic podcast. So let's kind of get into some of the meat of the stuff. I'm glad to have Stephen back. I feel like there's been a lot of stuff going on, man, a lot of uh, kind of new analyses going on. And I know Mark and I talked about that on Wednesday, but uh, I kind of wanted to start with uh, framing this a little bit with, again, I, you know, it's still just, there is just a lot of polemics going on right now. Even yesterday, I, you know, I mentioned two weeks ago that we have this wonderful water filter that uh, kind of has this wonderful smell like fish. Uh, so th- we've been trying to get that addressed. And so I finally called the dude up and uh, to figure out how we can make our water just smell like you want to drink it. And, uh, and so we were, I was chatting about, and this man, this man, good guy, really good guy. Uh, talked for an hour and I think hour and 10 minutes, 10 of those minutes were, were actually dealing with the problem. And so roughly about 60 minutes was dealing with just random stuff in his life. And then of course he started off with this idea that he thought that all this kind of uh, lockdown was just all a conspiracy theory, uh, that this is the new world order trying to ins- assert control, uh, over, uh, us. And, uh, it's just still out there. And I have good friends, even a couple doors down, putting Facebook uh, videos up from other people who think otherwise. Uh, and just, there's a lot of information and misinformation out there. And like I said, yeah, our, our, our main objective is to help you remain grounded and to really see this through a real perspective and offer hope and offer hopefully some ways to guide you through this difficult solution, as well as help to correct some of the misinformation. So I kind of want to get straight into that and just start opening up the door to Stephen and Mark to riff together. So we just found out, I think it was yesterday that we surpassed Italy and China, and I think we're going to surpass 100,000. It could be even while we're having the recording this podcast at the moment. And so I want to throw this first, right? Now we are at the top. We have the most confirmations in the world, uh, nearly 100,000. Uh, we, uh, I don't say, how, how do you say his name? Is it Dr. Is it F- Fauci or how do you say him? 
Yeah, I think Fauci. 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 There we go. So the so we'll, I guess, uh, we'll let's look it up. We'll uh, so yeah. we can yeah we'll, we'll make sure before we uh, before we go live. I'll, I'm sure there's something on YouTube. I'll, I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll we'll correct <laughs> so it. We'll we my that. apologies. Yeah, <laughs> so we you know uh, so in light of this, so what does this kind of mean? How does this reframe uh, our response uh, in the U.S. right now, given what we're seeing, especially in New York? So what does this mean for us right now, Stephen and Mark? Where where are we at, and how does this kind of reframe the picture? Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, it's a significant threshold that we've crossed for sure. I mean, we are, you know, as you said, now have the highest number of cases um, in any one country in the world, and and I think one of the really remarkable things is that the cases in China have been, you know, basically declining over uh, the past week or two, um, but it seems like here they're they're only going up, and so I think that really just what it underscores is that we uh, we really need to maintain the the, the sorts of distancing measures that we've been taking and just understand that um that this uh this epidemic which has really up to this point been a thing for other places is now is now really fundamentally ours and so it's something that you know we're going to need to deal with for really for the foreseeable future and i think also in the meantime we need to start thinking about you know what we can do to both help ourselves but also sort of have a mind to the rest of the world as well you know china really bought the world quite a bit of time as this outbreak was spreading there by being really on top of their social distancing and now the responsibility is sort of on us too to not not only protect ourselves, but also to protect everywhere else that we could be exporting infection to. Um, so that's the way I see it right now. Mark? Yeah, you know, it's been pretty striking to see some of the news reports out of New York right now. Um, and I have a couple friends there from uh, when I went to grad school before med school out in New York. It's really tough. Uh, it sounds the big thing in the news kind of from a clinical standpoint yesterday that I was seeing is that they were approving the use of a single ventilator for two patients. Um, oh, and, you know, this is something that's that would never be done as like first line therapy or, or necessarily this is only kind of crisis mitigation in the in the case that they were to not have enough ventilators for the patients. Um, but that, to me, coming from a clinical mindset, is a big signal of huge amounts of stress on the resources and on the ability to provide the, the kind of care that we want to be providing. Um, and so to hear kind of that kind of change going on is definitely really, really striking. And I saw this, I think this is the Atlantic article. I wanted to feature this. I'll put in the show notes. Uh, Stephen was quoted twice in this. And I really think this is the best article out there uh, on the coronavirus and its long-term impact and how this is going to end it is, it is a long read. It is a very, very good read. So I, I really recommend you guys uh, to read this whenever you get a chance. We'll put in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, I want to I echo that. I, feel, I felt the same way reading it, despite the uh, despite the PhD that they quoted a couple times in it, uh, Stephen. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Stephen, totally. So usually, usually something that so prominently features my little brother, I'm a little bit, uh, <laughs> oh, a, little, you know, <laughs> a grain of salt. But I, I was yeah, very thanks. impressed. Yeah. It, was a, it was a really well, really well done article. <laughs> yeah, it, it is awesome. And I, and I might mix up where these uh, stats came from. There's two of these articles I read back to back. Uh, but this goes into what you're saying, Mark. And I want to kind of dovetail into another, the same topic, but moving a little forward in this, that we said, even, even if we contained it by 95%, that that would still mean that 960,000 Americans will need intensive care. And from what this article mentioned, that we currently only have 180,000 ventilators and staff to safely look over 100,000, right? So we need more time. So I want to put this back into your court again. You know, we have the White House suggesting maybe four days ago that, hey, let's, let's open the doors on Easter. Uh, you know, let's, let's give it a couple of weeks. Let's, let's, let's do this. In light of what you're seeing, Stephen and Mark, 
is that even is that feasible to even consider that? And then I want to add, not to complicate things, the second question, because now it's been nuanced as of, I think, yesterday, or I'm not sure, but this idea of maybe putting zones in to the US of like which ones are kind of the low, uh, low risk, medium risk, high risk, and allowing the low risk zones to maybe open up more business and then the high risk stay in. Do you have, have any idea of how that actually might benefit or is that just a waste of time? So two questions. Um, is it even possible to reopen in any way by Eastern in light of where we're going? And how will this idea of zoning, would that be a benefit or is that going to be just wasted time? Steven? Yeah. So I think um, with respect to the first question, I think, frankly, I think that Easter is uh, is far too soon and that we really ought to be thinking about that we're probably going to be continuing this sort of thing for until then and at least for a few weeks after. My best guess is probably for at least eight weeks that we'll be, you know, sort of even as, a, as an entire country um, needing to do these sorts of social distancing measures to start to slow the, the increase in infections. And part of the reason for that is because, um, I mean, again, both from modeling and from experience from other countries, we know that social distancing doesn't really seem to have an effect on ICU capacity, like on reducing the number of people who are going to the ICU until it's been in place for about three weeks, mm-hmm. because that's basically just how long it takes a person to become that ill to need that kind of care. Yeah. So, you know, it's we're really going to need to to sort of sustain our efforts for at the very least four weeks. And and then and then only after that, uh, do I think that we can start sort of asking ourselves, you know, whether we can start letting up in certain places or to a certain degree. And I think that that'll be an ongoing discussion. Um, I do think that there's a possibility that that sort of this geographically targeted sort of zoning idea yeah. could be put into place. Uh, it seems like outbreaks so far have been pretty geographically variable and heterogeneous from place to place. So I think that is something that we might be able to consider. Um, but I think this first effort will need to be definitely be sustained uh, past Easter. Mark? You know, I, I'd like to just kind of circle. I, one of the questions that came up after reading that article and in some of the conversations I've had with Stephen and, and also some of the clinicians is, are we going to see this, you know, resurge, kind of have another like yeah. a, a fall or a coronavirus season over yeah. and over and over again? Something, the reason I think this is coming out is we're, we're already experiencing, like we talked about on Wednesday, sort of a social distancing anxiety or like a, our tolerance for that is already being strained. Um, and we're worried about it from an economic standpoint. We're worried about it from a social standpoint and uh, just maintaining kind of healthy relationships within our communities. And so I wanted to, just before we move too far, is Stephen, do you think that's a possibility that we could see that again? And what do you, what do you envision, you know, in terms of, could we have uh, smaller periods of more targeted social distancing if this were to to have sort of a annual pattern or what do you envision kind of in terms of the long game for that? Yeah, so uh, basically from from the research that I've been doing so far, I think that there is a pretty good possibility that we will see circulation of the coronavirus annually um, after this first initial pandemic outbreak. I'm hopeful that the severity of those infections will decline um, as we build up sort of intermediate levels of immunity to it. But I think there's a good chance that we'll be dealing with this probably for, you know, potentially for years to come. And, and, and there's some data we still need to collect to know whether that'll be the case. But I think that that's a possibility. And, and exactly what you said, I mean, one of the scenarios that we've been modeling is exactly this sort of intermittent social distancing um, kind of idea, which, uh, you know, is on the one hand would be great because it would allow us to sort of, you know, do this in smaller spurts and then go about our normal life in other ways. But there's also a certain fatigue associated with that, um, that, uh, you know, figuring out like, well, when are we on and when are we off and why and how and what exactly should that threshold be yeah. is is also still kind of an open question. 
But you know, you're absolutely right. There's there's real economic and social and personal costs to these sorts of things too. And so we're uh, and figuring out how to weigh those things is you know it's it's an issue for you know for public health, but it's also just an issue for us as 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 humans to try to figure out just like how how do we weigh these these risks both to ourselves and to other people. And and, and I don't think there's any easy answer to that question. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think it, as you were saying, just to kind of echo, is, is we have to be able to kind of look to individuals who know what's going on and who are able to guide us societally and, you know, in some of these really drastic interventions um, and have some sort of a level of trust and open communication and transparency between the public um, and these people. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, one of the things that we've seen throughout our sort of our society break down in certain ways is this, this feeling of trust or trust of uh, what the scientists are saying or what you know these these recommendations is are they too you know too stringent are we be, being are we doing more harm than the the viruses itself and even the conversation that you know uh, Matt that you were alluding to like those these are these are voices and in, in concerns that we need to in, engage with and understand deeply uh, and mm-hmm. also find ways to really effectively communicate and earn that sort of trust because this only works if we're together as a society, it doesn't work if it's uh, something that's only done by certain individuals or, you know, certain certain viewpoints or the uh, political along the political spectrum, too. And so you know, I think it, in some ways we it both uncovers uh, and also challenges some of the divisiveness and the siloing that we've seen um, that's been really, really tough on everybody for, you know, quite some time before this happened. And it kind of goes back to, I think, just selling the why in this because even meeting with uh, the guy yesterday and just not understanding the real why people are going, Oh gosh, there's like a thousand deaths. I mean, this is nothing. I mean, the flu kills so many, you know, 35,000, 40,000 in a year. Now granted we haven't reached our number yet. We're just kind of starting out. So we don't know how it's going to end, but I kind of just even delay that. I'm like, that. that's even beside the fact, right? I think the biggest threat right now, the why is, I think this, this got his attention. This, I really did. I'm like, because we're all, we're kind of self-interested at some point in time. And that like, we do not want to overload our healthcare system to the point where we cannot take care. Yes. Of those who are infected by coronavirus and need uh, a respiratory device. Right. Um, and, you know, I was talking to this guy, Greg, I'm like, if you were to get in an accident during that time, if you were to have a heart attack in that time, it might take them a while to get to you. Right. Um, so this impacts everyone, not just, not just COVID, but if we end up not doing our part, the big why, the why we do this is that so that everyone hopefully can still have healthcare made available to them in the midst of this difficult time. That's the goal, right? We want to try to spread this out. Right. Well, and great, you know, great, on you, Matt, for engaging, you know, you, you, you've got a, a salmon smelling water filter that you need taken care of, right? <laughs> totally. Like this is, there, there are certain priorities, you know, and you've got, you've got all these demands, you've got demands on your time and on, on your life. And by the and, way, I think it's know, more like bluegill smell, by the way. So halibut. I was <laughs> yeah. wondering. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say salmon made certain, it, made it almost like, like a noble I mean, smell, no, Mark. No it's it's good, not a noble smell. There are smell. some fish that are worse. Yeah, worse, totally. Totally. Worse, totally. Worse than others. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, and, and I, think like you said you know this is a guy this is a guy you like right yeah. this is a guy that you yeah. that does does good work yeah. and um and you don't want to discount just out of hand that he has some insight and some sure. value you know some value to add in this relationship that goes beyond sort of that transaction around the water filter sure. but he's he is 
you know, your neighbor in a certain way. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, for you to engage and to listen first, um, and then to engage and try and help, uh, this come to a shared understanding. I think that's, you know, a good model for hopefully what we're doing kind of across the board, um, with folks as we, you know, as we engage, not just within our communities, but across and, and outside of, out of those communities. What we're trying to do here is just at the forefront that needs to be is not me, but needs to be Stephen and needs to be Mark. Those are the people who need to be out and be be made known and, and can hear their voices because these are the people that actually have the real information. And uh, everybody else is just kind of the, the spectators, really. And so these are the people who are fighting the fight. The, I'm, I'm sitting in my house doing my part. I'm saving lives by chilling on my couch, which I never really do <laughs> because I have three little kids that destroy everything. But I'm chilling in my house. Uh, and you guys are the ones who are doing the great work. And I trust you. And I follow your lead. And I hope everybody else does the same thing as well, that we need to take take this seriously. So I'm going to put it back again because I'm, I want more information. So first of all, Stephen and Mark, what does this mean for, okay, how do I know you already kind of opened this box, Stephen, and you said, oh, we don't know, but I'm going to push you a little bit more. When will we know when it's okay to go outside? I mean, I don't need an exact algorithm, but like, what's the gist of like, how do we know we can see the light again? Like, is there, is there even some model of, 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 of seeing this right now? Well, I mean, uh, the I think the best examples that we can look to are, are the places that have already achieved some level of control. And really, right now, um, China is at the forefront of that. Yeah. Um, you know, they've been they've been sort of working on controlling this outbreak for you know a very long time. Uh, and you know, it's what is it? So it's end of March right now, and they've been. Uh, really engaged in pretty intense epidemic control since January. So you know it's two months or so that they that they were able to achieve this sort of uh, reduction in cases. So I think we might be able to look to them as an example. Um, now that said, you know the, the the distancing that they undertook there was was probably more severe than really anything that we'll be able to feasibly do here in the United States. Yeah. So it could even take a little bit longer here. Uh, but there are also a lot of reasons why it might not be the case that it takes quite so long. You know, it's there's still a big question as to whether uh, the transmissibility of the virus changes um, during the summer months versus the winter months. And that almost, I mean, it certainly won't be enough to you know, prevent an outbreak from happening in the first place, clearly, but it, it might help us to achieve control a little bit more quickly than we would have been able to otherwise. So I think really we're just going to have to start looking at the trends over time. Um, and again, we, we won't really be able to trust those trends until a couple of weeks. But then once we can, then we can sort of start modulating things. Um, so, uh, and hopefully, you know, my, my hope is over the next couple of weeks, then we can sort of reevaluate our plans. And then over the next couple of months, ideally, you know, we'll, we'll really have a sense of what it'll take to put this thing completely under control and to sort of manage these outbreaks as they pop up. Um, as, you know, they'll continue to, but hopefully we'll be able to do that in sort of a much more controlled measured way going forward that won't be quite so disruptive to society as a whole. We didn't talk about this, uh, the other, I think, episode, but there was a question that somebody had. I bring something again the long, the long kind of game. This idea that uh, we develop antibodies and we can maybe test this in the blood to see who might be immune. Uh, Steve, I know you said it when I brought up to you off the the episode. You mentioned that we were just starting to you know start kind of do some modeling about this. Is there anything like how might this incorporate us kind of going back into the workforce uh, through by offering some kind of blood work antibodies? And what does that mean, like? when it comes to immunity in light of the coronavirus? 
Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are sort of two questions there that, that can be answered, or there are many questions that can be answered through that kind of thing. But I think the two that, that seem to jump to the forefront of my mind are from an individual scale and then a population scale. So mm. from the individual scale, we can do these uh, antibody tests or um, serological tests uh, to, to determine basically whether you've been exposed to a virus and uh, presumably whether you still have some degree of immunity to it. And so we could use that to determine whether individual people potentially, you know, are 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 safe to go back to work, or you know, are very unlikely to pass on uh, the coronavirus um, because they've already been infected. So, so if if that sort of testing and if that sort of you know if these tests were available widely enough, then then we might be able to use it to 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 answer those sorts of questions. Mm-hmm. But I think it will be some time to, before that's a possibility, if it is ever a possibility, to really do that on a wide uh, on a wide scale. I imagine that that'll probably really only be most relevant for um, for for people potentially like healthcare workers uh, who are really oh, yeah. at the epicenter and where sure. it's really really crucial to know whether or not they've been infected. Um, but on the other hand, we can use these tests at a population scale to determine really where we are in the epidemic curve. Um, you can think about sampling a bunch of people just sort of randomly in the population, and yeah. that will help us understand whether there's been a lot of asymptomatic transmission that has led to immunity. And if that's the case, then we might be a lot further along in the epidemic trajectory than we think we are, which means that the epidemic might come to a close faster than we think it will. So there's there is some uncertainty as to where we are. You know, we we can sort of hazard guesses as modelers and epidemiologists, um, and you know, it, it is very clear that we're still at the beginning of something right now. But sort of charting where exactly we are is still an open question. And that's something that these antibody tests might be able to help us answer. Just two things I want to mention as well in light of what you just said. So I feel like there's like two big pieces that are kind of part of this puzzle to help us get. The first one is that the test kits are really the raw material of the plan. Like, I think that seems like I, I kept I thinking about this morning. I'm like, that's really like if you're going into war, so to speak, and kind of this coronavirus is like this, this, this war against the, this virus that without sufficient supplies, we have no idea where the enemy is and how many of them are in each location. And so we need to have this time, right? A little bit of time and more time to get more supplies to know, get more test kits ready available, which I kind of want to get a quick update on you guys of where the test kits are and how quick I just saw that there's might be an hour turnaround time coming up soon for test kits to help the hospital deal with uh, all these cases coming in. But that seems to be one of the biggest parts of this puzzle to, to allow us to even consider down the road. Um, when we're when it's time for us to come out, and then as well as this antibody thing, this this idea of being able to to somehow test um, uh, antibodies. How long do you think, Stephen and Mark, before we have test kits widely available, um, meaning that they're they're at the disposal to to anybody who needs them, as well as Stephen, how long do you, before we could have this idea of sampling potentially of uh, of, of of groups of people to to test to, to test their immunities. Yeah, I have no uh, idea, Matt. What? Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll skip that one. A little pregnant pause there. Yeah. I, I wish I wish we knew. I mean, I think like, you know, like we've talked about throughout this whole process, having really robust testing online early and being able to test big swaths of the population would would be really beneficial both from a clinical and from an sure. epidemiologic standpoint. Um, but I think in terms of projecting forward, in terms of when we have that t- type of testing capability, it's you know, anybody – I, it definitely is outside of my my scope, uh, you know, my knowledge. Okay, I don't know if you yeah. have anything, Stephen. 
I mean, yeah, it seems like so the 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 these innovations in testing kind of come in fits and starts. You know, they're they're it, it would be kind of nice if we could sort of like project, uh, you know, if we could project the increase in testing ability the way that we can project the increase in cases in a way. Sure. Because right now we can sort of draw an exponential line through these cases and get a rough sense for where it's going, but. Testing really relies on you know both you know getting getting access to materials, but it's also this very human process where there's a lot of you know there's the bureaucracy, but there's also just like figuring out just like where to run the tests. And, sure. um, with that, there's been a lot of ingenuity. Um, I know that here in Boston, for example, there have been a number of labs that are usually. Uh, used for other purposes that have been repurposed to run coronavirus tests, for example. Um, so people are trying to be really creative to figure out how to sort of meet these needs. But at the moment, it's, it's you know, I, I can say for sure that the testing is increasing and we're sort of on the right trajectory, but it's hard to say how long it's going to take before we can really do enough to to sort of uh, make make the make the path forward a little bit more clear and sort of understand sort of where we're trying to steer this ship. As we kind of getting close to closing this, this episode up, uh, I kind of want to just briefly, we're already kind of going a little bit long. So I'm going to synthesize this in this article uh, from, uh, from the Atlantic that, that Stephen was in, uh, there was three options given to us. And so I want the, to just, just the last one I want to talk about in, in the context of one specific question. So there's three options available. This article says it's that every nation works together to wipe it out clean, which is the most unlikely one. The second one is, is let it go and develop uh, herd immunity, but the damage would be considerable. And it, and it seems like UK definitely considered this, but then took a seat back and changed course. And we see this, I mentioned at the very beginning that even if we contain it by 95% in America, that's still leaves 960,000 Americans needing intensive care. So, so just allowing the, the herd immunity to develop can only imagine the consequence of that. But my last one is the one where it looks like the game we're going to play. And that is play whack-a-mole, they said, which is this the best, best uh, image of how we deal with this. Play whack-a-mole for a while until we have a cure. So I just one context. Maybe you don't have the answer for this yet, Stephen. But you mentioned that, okay, so eventually we're going to come out of this. Maybe in eight weeks, you suggested. Maybe longer, who knows. Uh, but sometime we're going to come out. But then you said there might be another time. We have to go ebb and flows, right? We do some social distancing. Mm-hmm. Can you speak at all into that, what it might look like? I mean, I would have hoped that it wouldn't be as extensive as we're doing now. So maybe less less traumatic, basically. What, what Do you have any concept of what it might look like for the next round? Yeah, so I think that... It's you know first of all it uh, it will ideally become less maybe not necessarily less intense but the duration will ideally decline more and more you know as as the epidemic continues until we finally sort of hopefully reach this level of underlying immunity in the population it's going to have to be pretty geographically tailored and that's both because of just the nature of the epidemic that it's you know it's it flares up in some places while it's declining in others mm-hmm. um, but also here in the United States um, there's been a lot of sort of legal talk about the fact that really really the the, um, the governmental entities that have the power to make these sorts of like stay-at-home mandates are with the states and with the cities. Um, and really, you know, the, the federal government can advise, but can't, uh, as, as far as I'm aware, I mean, and there's still some debate about this, but can't really, really enforce these things. Um, and so it's up to the localities to to sort of decide what's, uh, what's best for them and for their neighbors. So I think that both from an epidemiological standpoint and then also just sort of from a, from a political standpoint, this whack-a-mole strategy is sort of what we'll be engaged in for a while. 
and this kind of dovetails into the the conversation we were having earlier about testing is that um, as testing increases, we'll be able to sort of anticipate these rises in cases yeah. um, rather than sort of being caught flat footed and having to respond, you know, once our hospitals are starting to fill up. Sure. Um, so that will allow us to be a lot more proactive and actually do this distancing when it matters, which is a couple of weeks before people start coming to the hospital um, rather than waiting to see, you know, uh, say after the fact and having to sort of wait for this rise to happen. So uh, so I think it'll be sort of a, a patchwork effort, um, and it's something that we might have to sustain for, for, for some time. The most recent analysis that I've been working on suggests that we might be playing whack-a-mole for another year and a half unless we get a treatment or a vaccine. Okay. But, but again, it's, um, you know, as, as we start to see where infections are going more, um, and as we just sort of start to get used to this as potentially an element of our reality, you know, society will start to restructure and we'll start to restructure our lives as we need to. And, um, and I think that we'll be able to be sort of more on top of this, uh, moving forward. Great. Well, I kind of want to end with this quote. Uh, this is from the Atlantic article, same one, uh, from how will the coronavirus end? And so this quote came at the very end and it's powerful and it's a great way to end on. It says, so one could also envisage a future in which America learns a different lesson. A communal spirit, ironically born through social distancing, which we meant, which we've already talked about before in this, in this episode and previous episodes, causes people to turn outward to neighbors, both foreign and domestic. The election of November 2020 becomes a repudiation of America first politics. The nation pivots as it did after World War II, from isolationism to international cooperation. Buoyed by steady investment and an influx of the brightest minds, the healthcare workforce surges. Gen C is which is what this article calls the generations that are born in the midst of this coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, Generation C kids write school essays about growing up to be epidemiologists. Public health becomes the centerpiece of foreign policy. The U.S. leads a new global partnership focused on solving challenges like pandemics and climate change. In 2030, a new coronavirus emerges from nowhere and is brought to the heel within a month. And that's awesome. I mean, just think about this idea that the world is shifting and the opportunity is there's going to be hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of little Marks and little Stevens all around the world wanting to be doctors. <laughs> well, right. That's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's frightening. Yeah, totally. That is, it is, Epidemiology it, becomes the uh, the Neil Diamond of the, the, the yeah, hard sciences. Totally. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. That is totally it. Have little, instead of have little posters of epidemiologists all over my wall. It's great. Right. <laughs> that oh is goodness. totally nerdy. But this is, this is the difference. And this is the opportunity given to us. And, the, and, and the, literally the whole culture is shifting. Uh, the world is shifting to a different direction. We're seeing what used to be uh, the military being at the forefront of, of the fight uh, for freedom. And we're seeing now that the, now we've seen medical professionals and epidemiologists at the forefront of helping a much more global uh, and in a much more uh, kind of a, a difficult, different, different kind of enemy. So in light of this, I hope this episode was, was beneficial. I want to end with this, a question to each one of you guys. I'm putting you on the spot. It's a simple question, but also difficult. We talked about this idea of this ordered life and how we, we, we start with permanence and ground ourselves into a just cause. And we pursue that and we, and we live a life that's more of a discovery, which is the second pillar of the ordered life. This idea of trying to look at life as, as where's the gift in this instead of try to control. Because the more we control, the more we become anxious, the more we become exhausted, Right. So trying to look for the gift. And the third one is all about gratitude, right? From, a, from an idea of discovery, of living, knowing that life is discovery, we find that life is also a place to be grateful for. And I know it can be hard right now in light of the dark times. So I want to pose to you guys, Stephen and Mark, what are you grateful for right now? So let's start with Stephen. In this moment, is there something you're grateful for at the moment? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that the um, uh, two things. So one is just, I mean, the fact that it's, you know, it's it's turning spring here. You know, it's and, and even though I'm spending, you know, almost all of my time inside, <laughs> inside. and staring at a computer screen, but uh, you know, it's it's absolutely beautiful. Like the buds are starting to come up outside, and and I think that that just uh, it, it really reminds me that there's, you know, that there's just life and hope, and you know, and 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 a lot of beauty out there that 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 is even you know to a large degree just sort of unaffected by all of this and so i think that's really helpful for me to maintain a sense of perspective and the second thing is maybe a little bit odd but one of the things i'm grateful for is actually the the ability to hope in and imagine what things might be like you know after after all of this is 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 past i think that imagination for me has been has been really helpful and valuable um and uh and and just to sort of think you know in in a realistic but but hopeful way just like who who we might be you know, when this is over, you sort of akin to that quote you just said. So, so grateful, you know, almost preemptively grateful for, for how things might be. Sure. Mark. Yeah. You know, I think, um, definitely just this time and, and any time that we brush up against crisis or, uh, questions about our own mortality, I think, I think a lot about, um, my gratitude to my family and, and friends and the people in my life who are holding, my, me up and holding each other up. Um, you know, particularly, of course, think about my wife and the way that she's really um, holding holding our family in this beautiful space of care and nurturing, um, and you know, helping our kids continue to grow intellectually and and also just as you know, human beings, um, and preserving a sense of normalcy and of uh, of goodness kind of within the home. Um, it's just really, really beautiful to see it and super deeply grateful for that. Um, it's been great to chat with Steven it's, and kind of talk shop, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, this totally. has been a fun thing. Um, you know, and of course we would never want it under circumstances like this. Um, yeah. but just because of the nature of sort of what he does and, and what we're able to do together, it's been interesting to engage with him on a very different level than we've, we've been able to in the past. Uh, you know, I think also there's, um, I'm very, very grateful just for the opportunity to do the little bits that that we're able to do as clinicians, um, you know, and, and as a physician. I think um, there are times in which I feel it more and less, and right now I feel it very, very much, very strongly as the privilege and and just the opportunity of being able to be in this space and to be able to um, try and help a little bit. You know, there's. I feel like uh, the uh, what I can offer is is you know very small in comparison to those you know who are doing these big societal um, you know interventions and and talking about you know public health and and also you know the infectious disease experts and the pulmonologists and all those things and the, you know but but this there is a space and I think being able to be in that space of care uh, is something I'm really deeply grateful for. For me, uh, I'm thankful for a number of things. I'm, I'm thankful for, I just, uh, yeah, being with you guys three times a week. I love this. I love just connecting. I love learning. Uh, I trust you guys. I, I'm, I'm deeply ingra- grateful for your work and your service. I'm grateful for just being at home because, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to experience my, my middle child. So uh, you know, China has been part of our vocabulary as of like two months ago. So they are, they're always like, was that made in China? Uh, and so they're, they're like, so they talk about that, but then just yesterday, uh, I, you know, I would have been at work and, uh, all of a sudden Jude is watching, uh, a, like a dinosaur video and he's like, dada, dada, there's dinosaurs in China. 
there's dinosaur bones in China. We got to go there. So just getting able to participate and see these, like his, their, their, their excitement about things and connecting like geographical locations, just really grateful uh, for that as well. And I think the one of the most spontaneous ones is just, just recently, I just got uh, a text message from my sister-in-law, Dana, who, you know, just out of blue, because of this, because that we're all being siloed, asked if I was on Snapchat so that she could uh, send a bunch of videos to our boys, which it totally would not have happened, right? And uh, outside of this extreme context. Context. So, so, so grateful for the new opportunities that are being made available to us right now and new ways to connect. And I know I'd rather be in person with them, but uh, this still allows us to uh, have the boys get in front of their aunts and their uncles that they normally don't for maybe every few months, but now more often because everybody's having the same desire, right? We feel isolated and there's a desire to now reconnect and to connect deeper. And so, and I think from that's going to bear uh, a great fruit, as Stephen mentioned, that out of this, there's going to be some great stuff that's going to come from this. And one of this, I think, is deeper human connections. And I'm really grateful for that future that holds uh, before us. So that's it. That's the end of our other episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have questions, you can actually uh, uh, go ahead and tweet uh, Stephen at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R. Uh, you can also, we have a Twitter handle at Pandemic Podcast. Uh, it's just called Pandemic Cast because that wasn't available to us. If you want to check that out, that Twitter feed, me, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R, my website, livingthereal.com. And just one more thing I just found on here that I want to try out. It's called Marco Polo. Check out the app. It looks really fun. It costs like 30 bucks a year. So that kind of stinks, but it's a great way to connect with family. It's not social media. It's a way to connect with family and friends and groups. And heck, we might try to pull it out here uh, in light of the podcast, see how it works, but a great way to just send video messages back and forth. So I know some of us are always busy and we can't quite connect at the exact time with someone on the phone. So you can send cool video messages and you can go back and forth and have a good relationship in the meantime of being uh, at home. So I hope you enjoyed this. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you uh, next week. Take care. Bye-bye.